0: Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to Know It All, the ABCs of Education. At Know It All, we aim to make you a know it all about education law, policy, and practice as it affects you. We have candid conversations about the education issues that impact your community and the real life solutions to those education issues that you face every single day. Listen to us live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. or at any time from your computer at blogtalkradio.com slash knowitall. I'm your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education for all students. Keep up with me at allisonbrownconsulting.com. My guest host is Alexis J. Smith of Entitled to Educate. Good morning, Alexis.
2: Good morning, Allison.
1: She is a community engagement and parent empowerment specialist. Check her out at entitledtoeducate.com. Today, we're talking about the unique challenges that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender children, LGBT children, face in school. Much progress has been made for LGBT equality in this country. Don't Ask, Don't Tell has been repealed. Nine states and the District of Columbia now legally recognize marriage between same-sex couples. The Supreme Court has taken up an unprecedented number of LGBT-related cases, and more American people support gay marriage than oppose it. The federal government, and President Obama in particular, have routinely defended equality for gay people. Education is a very visible battleground of equality for LGBT people, and the conversation is not always the same as it is in other places. We'll talk today about how education is different and what we must do to continue to make progress for LGBT students. Aisha Moody Mills is the advisor for LGBT policy and racial justice at the Center for American Progress, where her work with the Fighting Injustice to Reach Equality, FIRE initiative, explores the intersections of race, economics, sexual orientation, and gender identity. Joseph Wardinsky is a trial attorney in the Educational Opportunity Section of the Civil Rights Division at the United States Department of Justice, My Old Home, where he enforces federal civil rights laws protecting students from discrimination on the basis of race, national origin, sex, disability, and religion. Good morning to you both. Thank you for joining us.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having
0: me. Good morning.
1: Ayesha, will you... Frame this conversation for us clearly. Marriage equality is not the primary focus of LGBT equality in schools. When we think about LGBT students in school, what makes their situation unique from other students? What do they need?
3: I'm so glad that you
1: framed it in that
3: way with regards to marriage equality. I know that um, just as a national conversation, when we talk about LGBT rights and LGBT issues, we are almost always just talking about marriage equality, and the reality is, is that a lot of gay people don't even want to get married, um, and that certainly for young people, it's not going to resolve any of the issues that they face. Um, so there are, there are a couple of things that are happening in schools. Well, let me actually caveat that first, the comment, with the fact that I wrote a report called Jumping Beyond the Boom, Why Black Gay and Transgender Americans Need More Than Marriage for exactly that point, and talking about all of these issues beyond the marriage narrative. So thank you for having this conversation. Um, when, we, when we look at what's happening in our schools, or just with LGBT youth in general, it's challenging enough to be an adolescent. And to figure out who you are and what that means for you as you're just developing as a young person. Well, imagine throwing on top of that questions about your sexuality, um, perhaps having a gender identity or expression that is different than those around you. Just being different as an adolescent, as a young person, is trying enough. If you think about you know peer pressure and, and just kind of the way that you know groupthink works in schools, etc. And so for LGBT young people in their school environments, certainly there is this otherness that they feel. Perhaps they are in communities, churches, uh family dynamics that are not accepting an open posture towards otherness. Um and so there's this fear one Confusion and trying to figure out, well, who am I? I'm 11 years old, right? No one really knows who they are at 11 years old. And so grappling with those feelings of trying to understand yourself and then perhaps not having the support around that is troubling um, and, and, and emotionally strenuous, et cetera, but then also being thrust into a school environment that does not provide a climate that's conducive to you feeling safe in exploring who you are, you feeling safe in expressing who you are. I mean, there are just a whole lot of, of, of issues just emotionally, psychologically, that LGBT youth endure. And then throw on top of that bullying and harassment that occurs because of otherness, because you have young LGBT people who uh, may not look the same as their peers or act the same as their peers or or have the same interest or dress the same way. Um that school climates, you know, that 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 have traditionally had teachers who turn their heads or administrators who turn their heads to bullying harassment just end up being unsafe places for young, queer kids and not only unsafe, um, but also just places where they're unable to think and to learn and to thrive because they're preoccupied with all these other issues that are happening with them. You know, the, the thing about the way that we talk about LGBT youth in schools, though, at least in the last couple of years since there um, have been these tragedies uh, with bullying and harassment and, and certainly an appropriate rapid federal response to that, is that we think a lot about how kids treat each other. So here's the kid who might not be like the rest of us, and the other kids are, are bullying them or harassing them or, you know, making them um, feel really horrible. Something that we don't talk a lot about and, and address is the fact that adults in these environments also discriminate against these kids. So what we know is we, we know that LGBT youth are more likely to be punished harshly, more harshly in their schools for the same offenses that other kids have. Simply because they're perceived to be LGBT, and that's something that I'm working on to really think about how the schools themselves, how the administrators themselves, discriminate against young people based on their perception of their gender identity or their perception of their sexual orientation. Um, in addition to thinking about how kids interact with one another. Mm-hmm.
1: Joe, you and I had the pleasure of working together at the Department of Justice, and. I know that this administration in particular has been very focused on um, enforcing civil rights laws, uh, particularly with respect to LGBT students, and and kind of expanding um, public knowledge of those laws and and public understanding of those laws. Will you talk about what the federal government is doing to enforce civil rights laws related to LGBT students?
0: Sure. Uh, And... You know, Allison, just to reiterate uh, what you uh, said a little bit earlier, you know, I'll talk first about what, you know, we're doing here at the DOJ, but there are, you know, efforts on behalf of LGBT students and, um, and all students across the federal government, and I'll talk a little bit about that later, too. Um, as you mentioned, the Educational Opportunities Section in the Civil Rights Division, uh, where, where I work, enforces the federal civil rights laws that protect students in public schools, public colleges, and universities, from discrimination and harassment on the basis of race, color, national origin, sex, religion, and disability. Uh, And all students, including lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender students are protected by the laws that we enforce. Uh, In the last few years, we have worked on uh, several cases uh, and a number of investigations uh, involving discrimination and harassment against students who are or are perceived to be LGBT. Uh, And most of the work in that area has been through um, our ability to enforce the laws that uh, protect students from discrimination on the basis of sex. Uh, Those laws, including Title IV of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972, uh, protect all students from discrimination and harassment based on their nonconformity with gender stereotypes. So in other words, if a uh, male student is being targeted for harassment uh, because he's not acting in stereotypically masculine ways uh, or a female student uh, is being targeted because she's uh, not acting in stereotypically feminine ways, Uh, that harassment, at least in part, is based on the student's gender nonconformity and falls within the jurisdiction that we do have to protect those students. and obviously, you know, many uh, LGBT students are targeted because of uh, some form of nonconformity with uh, society's gender stereotypes. Uh, to date, our work, uh, the cases that we've resolved in this area have been in the context of peer-on-peer harassment cases uh, in which students who either were or were perceived to be LGBT uh, were targeted uh, for harassment by other students on the basis of, uh, because they didn't conform oh. to sex stereotypes. And, and let me, you know, explain a little bit about what that that means in practice. You know, how is, how is a student targeted for these things? Uh, a student might be harassed for, based on sex stereotypes, if he or she doesn't conform in appearance or speech, mannerisms, interests, friendships, or other factors uh, for how boys or girls are expected to act, uh, or that they... Uh, Exhibit characteristics that are uh, in conformity with uh, their their sex. Um, I want to be clear that neither Title IX or Title IV, which are the the two laws that I'm talking about here, prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation, um, but they do protect all students from sex-based harassment, and that does uh, that does protect many LGBT students uh, as well as many others. Uh, In the last few years, as I mentioned, we've been involved in a a few cases that have um, uh, been resolved uh, in Tehachapi, California, uh, Anoka, Hennepin, Minnesota, uh, and two cases in upstate New York, uh, one in the Mohawk Central School District uh, in in New York, and uh, each of those cases involved uh, students who were targeted for severe, uh, pretty horrific harassment at school uh, going on for a a long period of time. on the basis of their gender nonconformity. Uh, and and Tehachapi, for example, uh, it involved a middle school student, Seth Walsh, who took his own life in September 2010 after enduring uh, pretty extreme and, and, and horrific harassment over the course of several years uh, as a student there. In Anoka-Hennepin, Minnesota, which is uh, Minnesota's second largest school district, we and the Department of Education uh, and private plaintiffs in a private lawsuit Uh, pursued relief against this school district where there were uh, pretty systemic harassment of students who were gender non-conforming throughout that school district. So um, I can talk a little bit about more of those cases, a little bit more about those cases later, um, but I do want to give, you know, the broader context of what the federal government is doing in this area as well. So the Justice Department works closely with our partners in uh, other federal agencies, including at the Department of Education, uh, and, and others to think about how LGBT students and other students can be protected from issues like bullying and harassment uh, and, and other things. Uh, as I mentioned, we've pursued several investigations and in cases recently uh, in conjunction with the Office for Civil Rights at the Department of Education, which also enforces the federal civil rights laws that protect students. So Hatchby and Anoka Hennepin are two examples of collaborations that we have uh pursued uh, with OCR. The DOJ is also uh, a member of the Federal Partners in Bullying Prevention, uh, which is an interagency task force with representatives from various departments, including the Department of Education, the Department of Health and Human Services, and others that uh, are thinking about uh, ways across the board to both respond to and, more importantly, prevent bullying and harassment of uh, all students before it occurs. And some of the things that the federal partners in bullying prevention have been involved in uh, in the last two years have been convening annual anti-bullying summits uh, and creating a website called stopbullying.gov, which is a a resource for parents, students, and and others uh, for best practices to respond to bullying, what the state of the federal protections are, uh, and resources for students and, and, and others, and, and it's a it's a good and growing resource for uh, on these issues. In addition, the Department of Education has issued several uh, what are called Dear Colleague Letters. Uh, these are guidance to school districts in the form of uh, letters uh, that interpret the laws that the federal government enforces. On October 26, 2010, the Department of Education issued uh, a Dear Colleague Letter making clear that harassment on the basis of sex stereotypes and and against LGBT students is protected under the laws that we enforce. In June 2011, Secretary Duncan also issued another Dear Colleague letter uh, related to the Equal Access Act, uh, which is a law that requires that all school districts that permit after school activities uh, or non-curricular student groups uh, are also required to permit gay-straight alliances uh and, and can't discriminate on the on the basis of the the topics that are being discussed in those groups and and in that letter, secretary duncan explicitly uh recognized the importance of g s a s in promoting safe and supportive school environments and as an important tool among many other things in uh promoting safe school environments and and addressing bullying and harassment before it happens
1: great aisha um l g b t youth of color have multi-layered societal challenges to combat. There was a story last week about the University of Texas at Austin's decision to force the resignation of its track and field coach, Bev Kearney. Ms. Kearney is a black lesbian who admitted to having a relationship with one of her athletes in 2002. Ms. Kearney had been a track coach at the university for 20 years. At the same time that it was forcing her resignation, though, the university released information about its assistant football coach, Major Applewhite who was permitted by the university to keep his job after he had a one-night stand with a student athletic trainer four years ago. Applewhite is a white heterosexual male. In addition to the difference in treatment based on race, gender, and not a protected class um, sports bias, Ms. Kearney was potentially discriminated against for having a same-sex relationship, while Mr. Applewhite was favored by the university because his heterosexual interaction was perhaps more palatable should talk to us about this intersection of race and sexuality, and the additional hurdles this adds for students to navigate.
3: And yeah, you you know that example just really highlights the compound effect of discrimination. You know, it's one thing to be a black person or a person of color, and there's racial discrimination. That's societal. That's that's systemic. Um, because we look at the roles and see that by almost every metric, people of color fall to the bottom. If we're talking about economic security, if we're talking about health and wellness, if we're talking about educational attainment, and there's a reason for that because there are societal uh, barriers that have been in place for for some time um, that just produce worse outcomes for communities of color. You compound that with then also being LGBT. You look at gay and transgender Americans, and by almost every metric, they fall to the bottom through all those same categories, despite the stereotypes that um, gay and transgender Americans are largely uh, wealthy and, and, and white, they're affluent people who are highly educated. Those are all just stereotypes. The data actually show that that's not true at all, um, and in fact they you know, mirror the rest of society. And what we're finding is that there are more people of color who are LGBT, particularly that are raising children, and they're largely living in the South. And so when you think about who and, – and, and LGBT people who are raising children are more likely to be raising those children in poverty. And so if you add all of those layers, you have this compound effect of – Being gay, being a same-sex couple that happens to be raising children, for example, is most likely that that family is living in poverty. You add that to the racial dynamics of educational attainment or lack thereof and, and economic status because people of color are also more likely to be living in poverty. You're actually kind of got all of these different layers of outcomes that are poor by race, by sexual orientation, gender identity, that a person who happens to live at the intersections, happens to be an LGBT person of color, is kind of faced with. There's, you know, not only the, the the double bind of being, say, a woman and being black, but then there's the triple bind of also being, you know, throwing in, being a lesbian you know, being a less sexual woman on top of that. And so it becomes very complicated um, as it shakes out with regards to discrimination, with regards to the likelihood of how you're going to be situated in our society, um, your access to opportunity, uh, you know, you throw on top of that the fact that these are, these are also, you know, your racial discrimination in the workplace, but you also have in most states of this country, you can be discriminated against in the workplace because of your sexual orientation, your gender identity. So, if you are a black person who is also LGBT, say the, the black trans woman, you're probably going to be the one who is the first one to get fired from your job, or the first, or the person who's never going to get hired for a job in the first place, simply because of those dynamics. And so, it is really difficult to to to, to live at the intersections, to navigate all of the, um, if you will, I guess academics would call it the oppressions that re, that are related to um, those identities and lived experience. When you're a young person, though, when you're an adolescent and you're just trying to figure out who your friends are going to be next week, the compound effect of all of those issues, it's, it's, it's a lot to manage. Because you're trying to go go to school every day, and then you're trying to avoid the bullies and the people who harass you every day. And then try, you're trying to figure out why it is that your institution, that that your school is giving you the side eye because you might be the black, non-gender conforming girl, and the white people don't really you know know what to do with you because you, you're already feeling marginalized because of your race, but then you're also not gender conforming, so you're feeling marginalized in that way as well, in a systemic way. Your teachers treat you differently. Your administrators treat you differently. And so it's, it's intersectionality. You know, we can talk about it um, in academic terms. We can talk about it philosophically. What does this mean? But from a real lived experience day to day, it's, again, walking around and really feeling your otherness, quote, unquote, because the systems around you, the people around you are treating you based on markers of difference as opposed to treating you with dignity and respect um, because you are a human and similar to them in that way.
1: Mm-hmm and uh, tell me what you think about um you know there there's been a lot of conversation about um you know really kind of pointing the finger at the black community um specifically and saying that you know the black community is is not accepting and they're intolerant and all of these other things and and um highlighting you know the potential irony between the civil rights movement of the, the black community um, Have seen and um, some of the progress it has made by, through activism and um, this this perceived um, unwillingness to accept the LGBT community. What do you think about this this perception of dissonance or this perception of of disconnect between the black community and the LGBT community? Is it real? If so, how do we address it?
3: No, it's not real. It's all it, you know. The black community is no more homophobic or intolerant than any other community first of all. So, white men have been in the closet since the beginning of time. It's called the closet. You know, a couple of black eyes in the closet suddenly it becomes this quote-unquote DL phenomenon. It's all the same. I mean, the white, mm-hmm. you know, white folks are are evangelical Christians just like you have black folks who are um, Southern Baptist uh, Church of God in Christ, very fundamentalist Christians. I mean, no community in my opinion, and, and from what the research has shown, is any more... Um, is is, is any more homophobic than the other. There are going to be pockets of intolerance in every community. But... The thing about you know African Americans is, is, is that is really frustrating about that perception is that there's been some research recently that showed that the black community and I actually wrote a um, I wrote a column about this that the black community and, and the black church in particular might even be more friendly than they are a foe to their gay congregants to their gay members um, because if you look at if you look at um, survey data and you ask people to identify for what 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 marker, uh, what identity do they kind of identify with the most. Is it their race or ethnicity? Is it their religious affiliation? Is it their um, sexual orientation? Is it their what? And 9 out of 10, black people are first going to identify as being black. And then they're going to identify as being gay, and then, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and they also report that black people, People also report that they and said church they're more religious than other groups of gay people. And so, what's interesting is that when you look at this and you say, okay, well, if the black community is supposedly so much more homophobic and intolerant and unwelcoming and all those things, then why do black gay people connect most with being black and attend religious services more than other groups of gay people? So, so there's kind of data there that shows that the experience of a Black gay person like myself within the context of the Black community is not at all as oppressive as the media rhetoric would would um, want us to believe. And the other thing that's been, that's really happened that's kind of exacerbated that idea is that the our our opponents on the right the foes of gay equality, the people who have been working, the National Organization of Marriage and the organizations who have been working night and day to ensure that gay people continue to be treated like second-class citizens have really fostered this narrative. It was part of their strategy and, I mean, their, like, written strategy of the National Organization of Marriage um, on how they were going to negate gay rights to try to drive a wedge between the black community and the gay community because they are the most natural allies when it comes to civil rights, when it comes to justice. If nothing else, the African-American community absolutely understands and believes in civil rights dignity and respect for all and that everybody should have a fair um, opportunity and be treated the same in our nation that was the civil rights struggle of black people and if you if you poll black people they say yeah we think that gay people should be treated fairly too marriage becomes a little bit of a different conversation that's changing though the over now a majority of black people support marriage but when it comes to things like employment um, protections when it comes to things like bullying and harassment of young people in schools, when it comes to every other marker of equality in terms of how we're treated under the law, overwhelmingly African Americans, 80%, you know, say, yeah, nobody should be fired from the job just because of who they are. That happened to us. We understand that. And so what the right did is they said, well, these two groups are natural allies, we're gonna do what we can to prey upon the religiosity of black people and try to drive a wedge between blacks and gays and to really what they did and and from a um and, and from a media perception it was somewhat successful. Um not on a not in a realistic perception of, of actual experiences of people in their churches, but in terms of the media hype. Is that they said we're going to play on, we're going to play the race card and we're going to play the, um, class card here. So we're going to make white, make gay people all look like we're going to make the gay community out to be just these rich white men who are, In other words, the oppressors of black people, right, rich white men. And then we're going to make the black community, you know, over here free of gay people. There are no gay people in the black community, and we're going to create that wedge and try to play off of racial and class tensions and get these two communities fighting. Well, that has backfired in their face because as i was just saying earlier it is clear from all of from from, from the census data uh, and other research that has been done that the gay community actually has more um inter uh interracial families and more people of color within the gay community who identify as being gay than we've ever realized um, and so there are obviously a whole lot of black people that are gay, that are a part of the black community. And then certainly looking at the gay community, it is not monolithically, you know, upper middle class, wealthy white men. And so I think, though, that from, you know, to your point, this public perception, they were able to get three, you know, pastors to run around the country being really loud, suggesting that, oh, well, we're black pastors who represent the black church and we, you know, are anti-gay rights. But the reality is, is that you know they had a real good PR game that has run its course, because we've seen the NAACP come out now in support of marriage. We've got President Obama come out in support of marriage. We have a you know I, I can't even rattle off all of the names of the theologians and and well-regarded theologians and academics like a Michael Eric Dyson and on and on, Aubrey uh, Hendricks who have always supported marriage equality have always supported LGBT rights, and now we're seeing our black pastors step up to the plate and be vocal on this also. So this idea that black people are more homophobic than everybody else is ridiculous. And I think, though, that one of the challenges that we've had is invisibility. There, okay. the, we just have not had enough visibility of out-and-proud black gay people who were able to break down walls and demystify stereotypes and kind of be visible and be fabulous. And so because of that, there has been a culture of silence within the black community, but that has been around issues of sexuality in general. So anyone you talk to in the black community would would tell you that you know my pastor doesn't stand in the pulpit and start and talk to black women about their own sexuality and 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 using condoms and protecting themselves even though black women have been are the are the the, the, the community that has the highest kind of evolving rate of HIV. We're not talking about sexuality in the black community, period. And it's not about homosexuality or or heterosexuality or otherwise. It's just that from a from a cultural standpoint particularly in the faith communities there's just been an uncomfortability with those kind of conversations and i think that that's also changing too mhm
1: and you know the this this idea of driving a wedge between you know the black and gay community in order to kind of diffuse the power there i think is very similar it's analogous to the the um the attempt to really drive a wedge that is labeled as race between um or in the the struggle against poverty you know and i, I think it, that that is a very very analogous situation and, and one that i think was far more successful than um than the one to to really kind of um separate black folks from the lgbt community um, Alexis, yes. know, there's been a lot of conversation about harassment and bullying in school, and and um, making sure that we are protecting LGBT students in school, um, and and making sure that all students are involved in in supporting one another uh, on an equal level, and that we all kind of equally are um, aware of one another as human beings first. Uh, and and I wonder if you would speak from a parent's perspective. What you think parents should do to inform their own children and empower their own children to advocate on behalf of children who may be gay?
2: Well, you're absolutely right, Allison. There's been a lot of uh, good information shared this morning already. Thank you, Aisha and uh, Joe. I was, um, you know, listening to this from a, a strictly parent perspective. I think. Um, <laughs> I would need to share what I think is, you know, one of the first points of consideration when we look at our children um, and, you know, children in our community, our children's friends and, and classmates. And I don't think it has anything to do with them, but more or less how we see um, the, I don't know if the word is evolution or just the presence of, um, you know, lesbian and, and gay orientation and um, gender identity issues, you know, within our community. And the question is, is it a a choice or, you know, quote, unquote, was I born this way? And I know that there is data, you know, research, um, public opinion to, I believe, support both sides um, that, you know, in some cases it it may be a choice um, and in in other cases, you know, it may be um, just, you know, a, a natural selection, the way that, you know, a child was born but I think that it's in how we view that the answer to that question um, guides how we move forward and in, in talking with our children and helping them understand. Uh, one of the points that was brought up earlier um, about um, discrepancies or um, discrimination in discipline, and you know maybe again it's more of a question than an answer. And I would pose it to Aisha, and that is, you know, what. To me, there's a difference between um, discrimination based in love and discrimination based in hate. For example, you know, I am a mother of three children, and, you know, using the the word discrimination, you know, you might be able to say, I discriminate in how I teach my youngest daughter uh, math versus, you know, how I have to approach math concepts with my oldest child, and that's because they learn differently. So I look at them as the individuals that they are, and I alter my approach based on what I know about them to, you know, impact the message that I'm trying to deliver. So, if we take, But I do that in love, obviously. I don't do that in a, a, a hateful, you know, negative perspective. So if I put myself in the role of a teacher or, a, say, a coach um, in a, a school environment, and I see what I believe are indications of, you know, a a lesbian or a gay orientation or a child who's clearly dealing with, you know, a gender identity crisis. And in my best hearts of hearts, you know, I may go to the local church with this child, but there's something in me that tells me this is a choice. And therefore, there's something in me that says that maybe there's something I can do to change their mind. And then I say, well, maybe if I push in one direction or another, and clearly it's a slippery slope, and I think that's kind of where I want you to jump in, Aisha, and tell us, how how do we deal first with our own questions and, and maybe, um, you know, just the different ways we look at it, assuming that it comes from a point of love, and then how do we then, you know, impact that, that loving attention and and differentiate it? Maybe the word isn't discriminate, but differentiate our attention so that we are meeting the unique needs of of children, lay, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, what have you, because I don't think that there's a blanket response. I think if you just put up, you know, a white sheet and say, we're going to love everybody the same, well, that's good, but there are some that are going to need some more love and guidance and attention and direction and maybe even correction just because they're individuals despite, you know, their... Well, uh, I
3: just say, cause you just take because I heard several things that you said that okay. I want to okay. definitely address. Um okay. So the first thing I would say is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important to always acknowledge um, because this idea, so I want to push back on this idea that you presented that there are some legitimate cases that have been made around whether being gay is a choice or whether being gay is just simply who you are. And the reality is, is that being gay is just simply who you are. There is nothing but junk science out there that has that, that is not reputable, that no one who is of any qualified kind of academic, you know, reputable standing would ever push or assert. Um, in fact, someone from the University of Texas lost their job for pushing this kind of junk science. Um, that suggests that, oh, being gay is just something that people choose to do. No, it's not the case. Like, I did not wake up, you know, five years ago and decide, oh, guess what, I'm going to be a lesbian tomorrow, and I'm going to get married (laughs) and this whole thing. Um, It's it's, just simply who you are. And and this is where the challenge becomes with adults who come from a place, well, who who think that they're coming from a place of being well-meaning, but it's really coming from a place of judgment, um, do most harm young people, because, you know, as I preface this conversation with, like, adolescent development in general, that being its own drama, right? So, like, just remember, and you have children. I don't have children. But, I
2: mean, I remember very clearly myself and then, like, my little brother going through this. Being, like, 12, simply trying to figure out how you're going to wear your hair in a way that,
3: like, kind of fits in with everybody else but is what you feel like you want to do but you're not really sure how to just – use it to express yourself how you want to express yourself because it's in the context of peer pressure and, and just figuring that out. And then you're, and your hormones are kind of evolving and you don't know, like, do you like that boy? Do you not like that boy? Why do I feel a certain type of way when this person talks to me at lunch versus when that person talks to me? And those feelings of, 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 of just adolescence and growing up are complicated enough, right? Like, this is complicated. Mm-hmm. We tend to um we tend to want to try and fake those for young people, but the reality is that those are their emotions in that evolution process that they have to own themselves. part of that is about sexuality it's about desire it's about like these new feelings of attraction, and the reality is that everybody's not straight, and so some young people have feelings, and those adolescent feelings are going to be. Um, start out as attraction. Sometimes, even you know, six and seven year olds have gender identity expression feelings, and they know what those are, and they know how they feel like you know what they feel like inside. Like I might be a you know boy, but I feel like I I feel like a girl, and this is how I want to express myself. Um, and those are very real feelings that, as little people, as young people, we have to respect and honor and acknowledge that they have. And I think that the I think that the inclination of adults is to want to tell a young person how to feel and how to be, and I think that that's where we initially go wrong. Be it we're talking about straight kids, gay kids, or otherwise, because what we should be doing is we should be con- be creating climates that are conducive to their own exploration and um, and their own thought processes, and really giving them the space to create like, their own life experiences and to connect with those and then to understand what feels good for them and what doesn't feel good for them. I personally don't believe, and, you know, this is this is also kind of areas of research that, you know, people go back and forth on, but I don't think that um, it is that that we create healthy young people by being really paternalistic around their feelings. Now, surely... There's right, there's, you know, right from wrong, and you should, you know, behave this way in, in a school climate, et cetera. But mm-hmm. when it comes down to, I'm emotion, I'm emoting. I'm really, this is what this is about. It's about, I am emoting, and I'm emoting in a way that people are, are suppressing. And so how does that make me feel about myself? Well, it makes me feel guilty. It makes me feel, you know, rejected. It makes me feel all these different things. And then I'm being penalized for really being who I am as opposed to that being fostered. I think that that's kind of a perspective that from just thinking about positive behavioral interventions in schools that we have to approach young people in a way that's not punitive, um, that's not penalizing who they are so much as it's penalizing, you know, the things that they're doing that might not, be playing out well in the school, like they're harassing somebody, right? Like it's because they're treating mm-hmm. somebody bad. The other thing that I would say that really gets tricky is this idea. Um, I think that you that you conflated this idea of discrimination with what's really differential learning, and the two are completely different. So it's not a good analogy. Mm-hmm. So to say that you know this kid is a visual learner this kid um you know is is has a different learning style and so i'm going to approach math with one kid differently than math with another kid that is about differentiate differentiated you know education right that's that's not the same as discriminating against a young person because you don't agree with who they love or discriminating against a young person because you don't agree with the fact that um they may not dress in a way that is comfortable for you and how you think that someone of that gender should present themselves. That's what's happening in our schools. What we're seeing, and I use the example of a gender nonconforming black girl in particular, um, because it's the, the black girl who might look a little more bitch, uh, butch, I'm sorry, and wear like um, baggy clothes or um, kind of present in a, in a more macho-masculine way, that people, in, that adults, Find to be more threatening. And this is what the research has shown that that
2: just so what does based a teacher do in that particular situation? Because, mm-hmm. you know, when we're talking about young people in general, you know, the conversation goes on all day. But if we talk specific, it may be the same thing with students as well. But if I'm the teacher in that mm-hmm. classroom and I'm looking at the girl that you just described and I see her struggling, what do I do?
3: You teach her.
2: I mean, and that's the problem, is that you
3: should, and, and this is the problem. If, as a teacher, you are differentiating how you teach a young person based on shallow and kind of um, surfacey markers of difference, as opposed to meeting them intellectually where they are, then that, in and of itself, is discrimination.
2: So I agree. I think if you're
3: has, talking about you know. her genes and her genes, in some way, change the way that you're going to approach her, then that is about what's inside of you and your own feelings, of, and, and, and it's the same thing. I'll give you a better analogy. It's the same thing as when a black man gets on an elevator with a white woman and she clutches her purse, knowing nothing about this man, knowing nothing about what, what's inside of him, knowing nothing about his life experience, but she makes the assumption about him based on what she sees and she clutches her purse. And okay. that is what happens day in and day out to gay kids in schools. And that's really problematic because, you know, and Joe um would could probably tell us more about some specific examples that have been prosecuted around this. Um but, you know, if if, if a if a, a group of girls get into a fight and there's a cheerleader who you know, I I know that cheerleaders can be very wicked in their own right, but these cute little cheerleaders in their little skirts are harassing and bullying the bush girl who's gender nonconforming and it turns into a tussle and a physical altercation Nine times out of ten what happens is that the girl who looks like she might be more macho is the one who gets a harsher punishment for being involved in that fight when she was not the one who started it. She was actually defending herself from being harassed by a group of other girls. But because she looks different, people make assumptions about whether she's an aggressor, and that's problematic. Because, and, you know, I had this, it's funny, I had this conversation I'll share with you guys um, with Melissa Harris-Perry, who has a show on MSNBC that I've been on several times, and, um, you know, she's become a, a friend of my wife and I. She has a niece who um, we met, she brought her to the White House, we went to the White House for the White House Pride event, and she brought her niece, who's a young woman, she's in college, she's a junior in college right now, and she is gender nonconforming. She's a lesbian, and she dresses in a very masculine way, she has her hair braided back, I mean, she's, of gender nonconforming, the most brilliant girl I've ever met. She's fluent in Mandarin. Her sister actually just moved to China, and I think she may follow suit. She um, is, goes to a very elite institution. She is going to get her Ph.D. I mean, very sweet, kind, warm, wonderful person. But clearly, we talked about how people look at her and make assumptions about who she is and what her aptitude might be and how they should approach her simply by what her pants look like. And so what I'm saying is that that is the critical challenge, and that's why I am doing the work that I'm really focused on this year is about tackling these type of adult attitudes and this type of um, perspective and bias and discrimination and, quite frankly, ignorance that adults exude around young people in schools because we talk a lot about, oh, well, how young people treat each other. They should treat each other with respect. But when you have adults who are not modeling that behavior, when you have vice principals that are kicking, you know, the young girl who was the bullying victim out of school because she got into a tussle with the seven girls who tried to jump in the bathroom because she happens to be gay, and you kick that girl out of school, but send the other girls to, like, you know, it, to, to one day of, of in-school detention or something and then keep it moving, that's problematic. And that's about adults and their attitudes and their biases and their ignorance. That really needs to be checked.
2: I agree with and, you uh, completely, actually. And I'm sorry, Allison, I just wanted to to just further share, you know, Aisha, again, I, I do agree with you, and let me just take a moment to speak up on behalf of cheerleaders across the world, um, you know, as a former cheerleader myself and and leader on that squad. This was, you know, in the 90s. And we had a very diverse squad, very welcoming. Um, And furthermore, in my high school, um, you know, the proms and the dances I went to, um, at almost every one of them, you know, we had multiple uh, same-sex, you know, couples there. And I don't, you know, from my perspective anyway, you know, I don't recall there being you know, a huge backlash. Now, you know, I wasn't in their shoes. I don't know. I didn't participate in any, you know, backlash that may have existed. So maybe I just, you know, fall in the category of, you know, ignorance and not understanding, you know, what it is that they are really faced with. But I'm hoping maybe Allison can um, bring us back around, because where I'm going with how this teacher would address the uh, young woman that you described, certainly you teach her. You know, you teach her based on her academic ability. However, there is this area of social and emotional learning, and I think that if you see that there's a struggle and you see that there are uh, impacts of her gay or lesbian status or her gender identity that are, are impacted her academic outcome, there's got to be something to do. And maybe, you know, that's where the question remains in my mind anyway. I and certainly, you
1: know, question. the, the yeah. civil rights laws do require that, and and certainly prohibit this, the the perpetuation of assumptions and stereotypes and and allowing those stereotypes to govern the way that, that teachers teach children or disregard children or mistreat children. I want to play a clip here. Um, and then, Joe, I'm going to ask you to, to weigh in. This is a clip of the Civil Rights Division um, of the Department of Justice and um, the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights, Tom Perez, and several different employees of the Civil Rights Division who were courageous enough to lend their voice to the It, it Gets Better movement, uh, which you can find at itgetsbetter.org. Uh, and this is a video of, of several um, LGBT employees who have come forward to share their stories of when they were children and and they were students in school and, and how things have changed for the better. Let's take a listen.
4: My name is Tom Perez, and I am the Assistant Attorney General for Civil Rights at the United States Department of Justice. No person, whether they are straight, lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender, deserves to be tormented by bullies because they don't fit some people's stereotypes boy or a girl is supposed to act. When I was in seventh grade, there was a group of boys that would tease me and bully me and um, they would laugh at me when I would speak because um, my voice was was higher pitched, I guess, than theirs was.
2: I didn't act the way, I guess, that
4: girls acted. The first time that I recall being made fun of or, in that case, being told I act like a girl or I was a sissy, I in third grade, and I remember talking to family members I didn't quite understand what that meant. And I remember the question that I got was, were you walking funny or did you say something differently? And that question alone told me, in my understanding, that I had done something wrong. I was called faggot uh, pretty much every day during eighth grade, homo, gay, queer, told that I'd never have friends. I was bullied for having
1: an accent, for being from another country, for being gay. I was uh, chased down by
2: a pack of kids. I know that there were times in high school where
4: I would wake up and almost be sad that I'd woken up because I had to face another day. I did straight. I pretended to be straight. I tried my best to be straight. If you can, confide in someone. You do have allies. We are here for you. And you have allies in the most unlikely of places
2: if you can find some hope in the fact that you have a whole community of people out here, people who you've never met and we've never met you, but we think of you and care about you and want you to be safe and want you to be happy.
4: For ten years I was alone, for ten years all the way through grade school, that I just didn't want to tell anybody. But I held on, and now I tell everybody. So, just hold on. I wish I could have told the younger version of me how things got so much better. Today, I would say I'm so much happier than I was then. I think it's also made me braver. When I was in grade school and high school, I was bullied. But now I prosecute bullies. I felt like an outsider, but now I'm part of a community that fights for civil rights. If I knew when I was eight that the thing that was causing me so much pain and made me feel so alone would actually be the basis of so many people in my life and so many friends and actually define me in a way that makes me very, very proud. I would get through it. I would make it. Just knowing. It gets better. It gets better. It does get better.
2: Hang on. It gets better. Now
1: Joe, will you will you chime in here? I, I was very proud of, of all of the colleagues who who worked to put that video together and um, the the publicity it received. What are your
0: thoughts? Uh, absolutely, and, and I'm you know proud of my you know my colleagues who are who participated in that video and uh, and you know told their stories. And I think you know some of the stories that you heard in that clip resemble the types of experiences that students today are facing in schools and that, you know, a student being harassed uh, because of their gender nonconformity or because they are LGBT or someone thinks they are is probably, or may also be uh, subject to bullying and harassment because they're a student of color or because they're uh, a girl or a boy or um, from another country. And uh, the federal civil rights laws that we enforce protect students from harassment on all those bases. Uh, And, um, you know, it, it can be forgotten that, you know, a student can be subject to multiple forms of harassment because of the various, you know, core parts of their identity, uh, whether it's their race or national origin or sexual orientation or gender identity, um, and and that the very real stories that uh, we just heard uh, from the adults in the Civil Rights Division are, um, you know, similar to those that we hear about in the country that are being faced by students now. Um, and you know, I wanted to, you know, just mention, you know, pick up on the the point before that, you know, there there might be some notion out there that LGBT students uh, are, you know, white and middle class and going to, you know, school in, in suburban school districts, and um, that the diversity of the LGBT youth population is. Uh, as broad as the population at large, and that the problems that are facing uh, LGBT kids in school uh, are shared by students of color and students in urban and rural school districts. Uh, And um, there are, you know, numerous examples out there of uh, students of color who are being both discriminated against and harassed, in part or in large part because of their gender identity. And um, I'll start by talking about, you know, one of the cases that we were involved in, Anoka-Hennepin, Minnesota, which I mentioned. There were six uh, student plaintiffs in that case, several of whom were uh, students of color. And the relief that we were able to achieve in that case, the steps that the district will be taking over the next five years, affect all the students in that district and take into account uh, all the the various ways that uh, students, whether they're LGBT uh, or not, um, students of color or not, uh, will be affected by safe, supportive school environments. Uh, and then I think that leads into the the role of schools here. And when it is that the DOJ or the Department of Education intervenes in a school district, and it's when the adults in the building aren't aren't responding appropriately, aren't, aren't doing their job to create a safe, supportive learning environment for all students, regardless of uh, who they are, and... In Tehachapi, California, for example, uh, as I mentioned, Seth Walsh was subject to harassment over the course of at least two years, uh, both in elementary school and middle school. His teachers knew about it. His classmates knew about it. The principal of the the building knew about it. uh, The district administration knew about it. His mom and others had uh, voiced complaints over, uh, you know, a number of months and years uh, that this was going on. Yet the harassment didn't stop. And the obligation of a school district – if a student's being harassed or a group of students are being harassed, whether it's based on their gender or it's based on their race or any of the other uh, categories, is to stop the harassment, make the school climate better, fix, fix the problems in the school climate that's making it a less than supportive uh, school environment, and make sure that the harassment doesn't continue. And there's various ways through the agreements that we've reached with these school districts uh, that we – uh, hope that these school districts will uh, eradicate the problems in their school climates and, and make their schools a more welcoming place for all students, including the, the LGBT students who, who go there now and will go there in the future. So in Tehachapi, for example, the district undertook a massive review of its uh, policies and procedures related to bullying and harassment and how it would handle complaints of sexual and gender-based harassment that they received. Uh, They retained a third-party equity consultant um, from one of the federally-funded regional equity assistance centers, which can provide resources to school districts in in, in addressing these problems and in uh, promoting safe school environments. They're required to conduct trainings of all the staff that work with students, not just teachers, not just administrators, um, but all staff who come into contact with students, recognizing that bullying and harassment... Happens not just in the classroom, but in the cafeterias and on the school buses, uh, in the you know at recess in the in the playground, uh, and that all the staff who interact with students have a role in saying something when they see a problem or when they learn of a problem, and, and making sure that the district then proceeds to take you know, adequate steps to address those problems. Uh, in, in addition to training you know students on uh, diversity and uh, and and other things. Uh, Conducting annual school climate surveys to get a sense of where are the problems and what does the school or the district need to do to uh, you know target its efforts to make sure that uh, problems aren't continuing you know for example if LGBT students are being targeted in the uh, in the locker rooms more than anywhere else uh, or you know in certain teachers' classrooms to be able to identify that and take proactive steps to address those Uh, things moving forward. Um, In Anoka-Hennepin, the the district was required to take a number of similar steps. It was a much larger school district, and the the relief uh, obtained in the consent decree that uh, the court approved last spring uh, adopted many of those same measures. In addition to uh, uh, the district hired, was required to hire a mental health consultant uh, to work with the school district to identify students' mental health needs, um, both uh, that might serve as the the reason why students were engaging in harassing conduct, but also uh, to address the effects of harassment on on students in the district. Um, the district also has convened an anti-harassment task force uh, and was specifically required to identify so-called hot spots within its schools, uh, like I mentioned, where bullying and harassment might be w- worse in other places and do something about that. So, you know, the bottom line is that a, that a school and its, you know, staff can't sit idly by when harassment that they know about is occurring. And right. the obligation when it learns about this is to, you know, step in and take all the measures that it can to finally stop the harassment uh, and, and do so in a really thoughtful way.
1: I want to, before we before we end, we have um, a couple of minutes left, and Aisha, I'm wondering in about a minute and a half if you can answer this very complicated question. <laughs> Um, we have NFL teams who are who are weighing in and starting their own um, "it gets better" movements, and the San Francisco 49ers are, is one of those teams that has joined in the movement. And pop stars like Frank Ocean are receiving critical acclaim. He lost no momentum whatsoever after announcing that he is gay. we finally reached a tipping point of acceptance in the gay rights community? And then, what can race advocates do to emulate those successes?
3: I mean I think that yes we have absolutely reached a tipping point um more than half of Americans more than half of people in the black community in particular believe in marriage equality as something that's a positive thing um so we've definitely reached a tipping point you know it's funny you mentioned the 49ers um because right before the Super Bowl one of their uh, members said some really ridiculous, um, kind of hateful things about if, he, if if it were possible that he would have a gay teammate in the locker room, and he kind of went on his whole rant, this anti-gay rant. So uh, it's no wonder that they lost the Super Bowl because, as my grandmother would say, God don't like ugly. Um, and then you had Baltimore Ravens, who has a very, very, very vocal supporter of marriage equality on their squad. Um, so, I mean, and I uh, full disclosure, Danielle and I had a radio show about this last week, and we had former NFL player who is uh, a gay man named Wade Davis on our show, talking about sports, particularly, and as like a final frontier. Um, and eradicating homophobia there But yeah, we've reached, reached a tipping point I think that for race communities And I, I would say that the LGBT community In many ways is learning from the traditional Civil rights movement um, And I think that they're continuing to do this, All of the things that are right um, But at the end of the day you know, I think it's about changing hearts and minds In a really big um, Kind of pop culture way And that's what the gay community has done so successfully Is really infiltrated Not only Capitol Hill but Hollywood and now we have shows where we have affirming, you know, families on shows, and I think that that's been really critical.
1: Well, I want to thank you all so much for joining us. You are now officially certified know-it-alls on ensuring equity for LGBT students. Thanks to Aisha Moody Mills, the advisor for LGBT policy and racial justice at the Center for American Progress, and Joe Wardinsky, who is a trial attorney in the Educational Opportunity Section of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. Have a wonderful week. Go forth and share. Join us next Tuesday, February 19th, for our Black History Month Current Events Mashup. Remember to follow Know It All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter. Find ABC on Facebook and read my blog at AllisonBrownConsulting.com. Thank you.